That's okay. Oh, 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 that looks bad. It's, it's, oh, it's very excitable here. Okay. Wow. That was a good way to start, wasn't it? Hi, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's my privilege to get to uh, speak to you this morning. I wanted to know, um, as we get started, who here is a chess fan? Who, who likes chess? We've got some chess fans here. Who, who likes strategy games in general? So including digital strategy games, boys. There, oh, see, I, um, I wouldn't call myself like a super chess fan, um, but I'll tell you what I can do is I know how a horsey moves around. And so I could probably, if it came down to it, I could probably put up a bit of a fight in a game of chess. Well, but when you play chess or when you play any of these other strategy games, um, it's all too easy, isn't it, to think that you have the epic, cunning plan, that you have arranged everything, that you know how everything is going to unfold, and in just one more move, the game is yours. Can I borrow that one? This is not working for me today. There we go. In one more move, the game is yours. Um, it's only too easy to think that, and then suddenly discover... Actually, you're not as smart as you thought you were. Actually, the other person had a more cunning plan. And actually, you've just lost the game. Who's been there, right? Well, the, the Bible is it's like a library of books held together by one cover. And as a church, we've been working our way through one of them, the Gospel of Luke, bit by bit for like over a year now. And uh, you'll be pleased to know we are finally getting towards the kind of thrilling climax. We're getting towards the, the, the end of the story. Um, but the, the Gospel of Luke is a, is a book written by a guy, unsurprisingly, called Luke. And he's a, he's a doctor uh, with an eye for detail. And so that's kind of how he writes about things. And he tells us the story of the life of Jesus. And uh, today we're going to hear Luke set the scene for the final critical series of events. And what he's doing here is he's like showing you a chessboard. It's what he's like he's doing, showing you where all the pieces are. He's showing you how they've all been moved. He's showing you how it's set up for this conclusion. And it looks like everything is going to be set for a win, a dark victory. That's what it looks like as we come into this final section. Rachel's going to come and read to us now. We're reading from Luke chapter 22. That's page 1057. If you've got one of these blue Bibles, Luke chapter 22, page 1057. And we're going to read the first section. So look for the big 22 and we'll read down that first section. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Thanks very much, Rachel. So, short little section for us to look at here. But as the moment of truth approaches, you read that Satan makes his move. But I just want to hit pause right there for a minute. Now, in the, in the Bible, Satan is the personal name for God's supernatural enemy. The word Satan, which is like Hebrew in origin, it literally means adversary. 
But when the Bible talks about Satan, it's talking about a specific, personal, supernatural being. It's talking about God's adversary. Now, the question we should be thinking about this Sunday morning is, are we really going to talk about supernatural evil spirits? Are we really going to talk about that sort of thing in sophisticated 21st century Scotland? You might be thinking, well, people back then, maybe they believed in things like this, sure, but they were pretty naive pre-modern cultures. Centuries ago, they used things like this to explain stuff they didn't understand, when didn't like, when they didn't know any better. If that's kind of where you're thinking, well, first off, we should be a bit cautious about writing them off as just uh, naive simpletons who would believe anything anyone told them about anything. It was a long time ago, sure. It, it was a long time ago. And some of the ideas they had for how to explain things do sound pretty crazy to us nowadays. Probably you can think of examples of that. But they weren't stupid. It's really quite arrogant of us to think that people living thousands of years ago were just really, really stupid and they would believe anything. That's not true. When they acknowledge evil supernatural beings, they've got reasons for doing that. They don't blame absolutely anything and everything on evil supernatural beings. Um, In the story we're reading, the Gospel of Luke, we haven't heard about things like this since chapter 13. A lot's happened that you might imagine would be pinned on Satan between now and then. But second, Even in our modern and sophisticated world, you might be surprised just how many people are pretty confident there are good and evil supernatural beings kicking around. If no one believes things like this anymore, you might be able to be more comfortable thinking, well, we're much more sophisticated now. We know better now. But but here we go, a 2015 UK survey for you. 82% of respondents said, I believe in the supernatural. This is in British adults aged 18 to 65 in 2015. This is not some freaky weird survey. People nowadays still believe in these things. 68% said, I have personally experienced a supernatural event. 68% of people. So if you're tempted to think that this is only the sort of thing that people long ago who are really naive and not very clever would believe, well, Well, it's actually a dominant belief even in 21st century Britain, which is weird. If if you're certain there is no thing because you've never experienced it, because there's no place for it in today's chemistry and physics, shouldn't the fact that so many others believe something, so many others have even personally experienced something, perhaps just give you pause for thought, at least maybe, just maybe, you are not actually smarter than everyone else ever. Ultimately, for us as a church, I guess we believe this because we believe the Bible is a trustworthy and an authoritative source. It tells us there's an evil spirit called Satan, that he is God's enemy. It tells us that he has significant powers, that he's been working to ruin God's creation from the beginning. It's not a popular topic. It's not a cheery topic. We wouldn't choose to talk about it every week, but it is there. So what do we see in this section? We see Satan making his move. Now, one of the questions I had about this passage as I read and thought about it during the week was like, why like this? If, if Satan wants to get rid of Jesus, surely there are easier ways to do it. I guess to start with, though, Satan can't beat Jesus head to head, or he would. I mean, think about this. If he could just step in and take out Jesus himself in a one-on-one kind of mano a mano. Wouldn't he have done that ages ago? Why can't he do that? Because, because Jesus has 
supernatural defense in his pocket, and Satan knows it. Uh, in Matthew 26, 53, just over one uh, book across, Jesus tells us he can call on his father at any time, and his father will put 12 legions of angels at his disposal. And at that time, it seems a legion's about 6,000 soldiers. So that's a, a SWAT team of 72,000 angels. That's not bad going. So the frontal assault is perhaps out of the question because of that. Um, he can't turn Jesus. He's tried that one already back in chapter 4 in Luke's story. Satan tries offering Jesus everything, all sorts of things, offers him the world if only he would come to heal. Well, he's tried that, but he's failed because Jesus is pure, tempted like us, yes, but he doesn't fall. Luke tells us at the close of that encounter, the close of that attempt, that Satan leaves Jesus until an opportune time, is the phrase it uses, an opportune time, until the right moment. So he can't go head to head. He can't turn Jesus from the side, but still, there have got to be plenty of options, right? Surely you could just take over somebody with a sword, chop them up, easy way to get it done. Or, or um, why, why not spook a horse and have him run down by a, a chariot in the street? That sort of thing, I'm sure, happened often enough. Why does he go for Judas? Why does he go for one of Jesus' 12 chosen core followers? Well, he's waited a long time for the right moment. Why is this the move? I think it's because it's carefully planned to inflict maximum damage. Satan doesn't just want Jesus dead. He hates every good thing that God has done and planned, and he wants to destroy it all. And, and, and I think actually this move has an evil logic to it. So if you think about it, use one of the inner circle of 12 to betray Jesus. Do you know what that does? They'll never trust each other again. They'll always question Jesus' choice for picking this Judas guy. Have Jesus, uh, Judas betray Jesus to the chief priests? Well, they're meant to protect and to nurture and to guide God's people. They destroy the only one who could have rescued God's people from his grasp. That's, that's got kind of an evil logic to it. Use those appointed by God as part of his salvation plan to sabotage and ruin that plan. I, th- I think it does make a little more sense, perhaps. So Satan enters Judas. That's the language of the passage here. That's the way this doctor, Dr. Luke, explains what's happened. And really, this is the language of possession. So I'm just going to take a couple of minutes. We don't talk about this every week, but when the Bible talks about it, we do talk about it. Um, Class in session, Possession 101. Let's see what we can learn. A couple of questions that I asked myself as I read this and thought about it. First one, does Judas leave the door open for Satan? Was he particularly vulnerable in some way? Could he have resisted Satan entering into him if he wanted to? Well, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to those questions. The Bible doesn't always tell us everything that we want to know about every question we would ask. It just tells us everything we need to know. Here's what we do see for sure. Satan is definitely after all of Jesus's followers. Uh, Just down in verse 31, he tells you that. But Jesus tells Peter, another one of his core followers, he says, I've prayed for you, and so I'm certain you will not fall. So Jesus does seem to have the power to completely protect Peter, to make this an impossibility for Peter to fall in that way. And Jesus, when he's teaching his followers to pray, he gives them this famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer. There it is on the wall. Um, he, he makes us pray, 
deliver us from evil. And the way evil is expressed there, that probably could mean personal evil, the evil one. So he teaches us to pray, which tells us God has the power to kind of protect against this as well. So does he leave the door open? It's not entirely clear. Once Satan has entered Judas, how does it work then when he's possessed? Does he just become like a, a puppet on strings doing exactly what he's told? Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, why do I say that? First of all, Judas seems to act in line with his character even after Satan's entered into him. Over in John's Gospel, another one of these stories of the life of Jesus, you read this about Judas. He did not say this. Judas is like, don't waste that money. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said this because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas does not care about the poor. He helps himself to Jesus' cash. And here we see him betray Jesus, not because he hates him. If he hated Jesus and wanted him out of the way, he wouldn't need money to betray him. He could just do it anyway. But Matthew's gospel records Judas asking, what are you willing to give me? Show me the money is the way he's approaching this. He is still Judas, in it for the money. If Jesus isn't going to make him rich, Perhaps betraying Jesus can make him rich. Second thing, the, the, the Bible holds Judas responsible. Ju, uh, Luke goes to pains to show it is Judas who's doing the betraying, not kind of Satan animating Judas. Um, verse 47 says, the man who was called Judas arrives to betray, emphasizing he's a man. Verse 48, Jesus addresses him as Judas, where other times Jesus speaks to the evil spirits inside of people. Here he's speaking to Judas. Matthew 27, 4. As things unfold, we hear Judas lamenting, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests declare, well, that is your responsibility. So the Bible's very clear that Judas is responsible for these things that are happening. In Acts 1.18, it's described as his wickedness. That is Judas's wickedness that he does looks like Judas is held responsible. That suggests to us he's not just a puppet. He's still Judas, just kind of Judas released to be his ugly self. So what, what about us? Could you or I be possessed in this way? Do we have any power to resist? Well, James Chapter 4, verse 7, another section of the Bible tells us if we submit to God, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Ephesians 6.16 says, take up the shield of faith. It says, with that, you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, that's pictorial language, but it's clear with faith we can withstand his attack. We can stand our ground is the way Ephesians 6.13 puts it. But I think it's even more encouraging to know there is a fundamental difference between Judas's situation and that of a Christian today. And that is every Christian has a, like a no vacancy sign up. Romans 8, 9 tells us everyone who belongs to Christ has the Holy Spirit living within them. And if the Holy Spirit is living within you, then there's no way Satan could enter in. Like that said, Satan is spoken of as specifically obstructing Paul, another one of Jesus' first followers in 1 Thessalonians. So we would be foolish to think, well, he's got nothing to do with us now. We can just forget about that altogether. And why would Jesus instruct us to pray, deliver us from evil or the evil one? 
if it wasn't an issue. Now, I'm sure there are going to be a lot more questions. This is the sort of topic that does raise questions. And we'll try and respond to a few of those uh, today as we're gathered. We'll respond to as many of those as we can during the week and post that so that you can, um, you can keep on thinking about these things together with us through the week. But we need to move on because this is not actually the main thing here. We want to zoom out and look at the wider scene. We want to see how the chessboard has been set up for us. Remember, Luke is setting the scene for us. Lots of things are happening at once. Satan entering into Judas is one of them, but there are other things going on as well. We also have to notice it is nearly Passover. As verse 1, it's just days away from this kind of Jewish high festival where they are celebrating the supernatural escape from slavery in Egypt centuries ago. And, And each year and still today, Jewish people gather to share a special meal, which is designed to remind them of this kind of defining event for who they are. It's the meal their forefathers ate on the night of the Passover. They remind themselves of the story. They've been slaves in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years, but the time had come for God to deliver them. They were told, sacrifice a lamb, and then mark their doorways with its blood, which is pretty gruesome stuff, isn't it? And then they're prepared to leave, eat one last meal, eat it in a rush, dressed ready for action, dressed to head out. And while they eat, God visits destruction on their captors. But because of the blood of the lamb on their doorway up here, then the destruction passes over them. And then it's called pass over. That's where the name comes from. In the morning, they go free. Um, they're released. So this is in the background. This is what is about to happen as these final events in Jesus' story unfold. There are huge crowds gathered in Jerusalem. It's extraordinarily busy at this time. I guess the other thing to think about is these religious leaders. They're bitter enemies of Jesus by this point. They're watching. They're waiting for an opportunity to take him down. Now, they can't do it in the sight of the crowds. Remember these huge crowds assembled? They can't take Jesus out in front of the crowds because he's popular with the people. That's the setup. Passover, leaders looking for an opportunity, Satan entering Judas, and now the story really starts to accelerate. The religious leaders think, our moment has come. We've got a way to take Jesus down finally. We've got an insider who's going to give us Jesus away from the crowds. It's the irony here of Israel's religious leaders literally doing a deal with the devil. Isn't that quite something there? It's lost on them. Satan thinks his moment has come. He thinks he can crash this whole thing. And can you see the irony of doing that at the point they're celebrating God's deliverance of his people? If he can destroy the whole thing as they're celebrating deliverance. They all think it's checkmate. Doesn't look like there's going to be any way out for Jesus as the trap closes, as we keep following the story. But they've all overlooked something. The reality is they've lost. They just don't know it yet. Think about Judas, right? He gets his money, but he's dead in a field before Jesus' story has even run its course. Think about these chief priests. They think they've won when they manipulate the authorities and the people to see Jesus killed on a cross. But then, then come the rumors that he is risen. And soon they'll find out no matter what they do, they cannot stamp out this belief in Jesus alive, not dead. 
A few decades later, their entire religious center, everything they were working to uh, to preserve is destroyed by the Romans. Peter was speaking to us about that last week. And Satan, God's enemy, thinks he's won. He watches God's people kind of turn on themselves. I imagine he gloats as Jesus is betrayed, as he's tried, as he's abused, as he's crucified. But three days later, when Jesus rises from the dead, he must understand that, in fact, he has lost. And one day when Jesus returns, that defeat will be completed. You see, ranged against Jesus, all their plans, all their strategies, all their setups, they think they've won, but they just don't know who they're dealing with. The Bible's filled with hints with shadows, with pictures, with foretellings of what's going to happen here. But they've not paid attention to them. They've not understood all of these things. They've not believed them. Even at the height of the Passover festival, imagine that. How did they miss the fact that Jesus is going to be the true Passover lamb. He's going to be sacrificed. His blood is going to be poured out. But because of this sacrifice, through his blood, God's people will not be destroyed. They'll be set free. His death wins freedom for his people. Jesus is the the suffering servant. described by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, Isaiah 53 tells us. It was the Lord's will to crush him. He bore our punishment so we could know peace with God. His death was not an accident. His death was a plan. Jesus is the good shepherd, we read. He himself tells us this in John chapter 10. He lays down his life for those he loves. But Jesus also tells us, as he speaks about laying down his life, he lays it down only to take it up again. His death is not the end. Jesus is the son of Eve. The one who will finally crush Satan's head, as Genesis 3.15 tells us right back at the beginning of the whole story. Satan gets a blow in. He hits Jesus. He wounds Jesus. But that's just half of what it says. You will strike his heel. But Satan, how did you not hear the rest? He will crush your head. It's not Satan who wins here, but Jesus That's the end game. Only God wins in the end. Now, this is awesome in the the proper sense of that word. What does it have to say to you and me here today? Well, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today, we really are glad you're here. Uh, The only thing I really want to say to you today is that only God wins in the end. Now, you might think you're winning at life. Perhaps things are going your way. You might think you've got your plans and they're working out and the moves seem to be adding on top of each other. It's going the right direction. In just a few more moves, you're going to win. However you picture winning. Rich, comfortable, happy in that relationship. Maybe maybe it's early in the game for you and it all seems a very, very long way off. Maybe it's late game and you feel like I've just got a move or two more to make and then I'm there. Maybe you wouldn't say so much that you're winning, but at least you're not losing. At least you're, at least you're getting away with it. At least you're still 
in the game. But either way, you are not seeing the whole story. Every one of us is always just one move away from from death. We're one move from that end game. I don't know what's ahead for you or what's ahead for me. But I can tell you this, you are going to die at some point. And then however you've been doing at this game of life won't matter one little bit. The story is told of a funeral of a rich old lady. Somebody comes up to the minister just uh, intrigued about what's going to happen. How much did she leave, he asked the minister. And the minister's reply is, everything. See, on that day, winning in this life is completely irrelevant. The only win in the end is God's win. The only game that really matters is his. So are you playing the wrong game today? Are you in it just to win it in this life? You're thinking too small. Your horizons are too limited. There are far greater things at stake here. This is the, this is the good news of Christianity. God invites you, come, share in Jesus' victory. Share in his win in the only game that ever really mattered. Come and learn with us what Jesus has won. Come and share with us in what Jesus has won, true freedom, even freedom from death, true community, even community with God, true joy, joy in his goodness and his good plans. Why not talk to someone today? What about if you'd already call yourself a follower of Jesus? Well, I think for us, so often, it does feel like we're losing Doesn't it feel like we're losing when things aren't going our way at work or at school? Doesn't it feel like we're losing when it rains on your holiday? Doesn't it feel like you're losing when your significant other lets you down? Feel like you're losing when things just won't go as quickly as we want them to. Losing when we don't get the breakthrough we hoped for. I want to challenge you and me this week. Try and grab hold of our thoughts and our feelings. When that emotion of disappointment hits us, when that starts to settle in, I want us to try and remember together the bigger picture, the bigger story that, in fact, Jesus has won. And he's won the only game that matters. Yeah, it might rain on your holiday. People might let you down. You might not get that promotion. You might not pass that test. But you know what? Jesus won. It might look like the enemy has the upper hand. It might look like there's no reason for hope. If you look at the picture wider, you might think the church is losing. You might think the world is going to hell. It might look like that. But then try and remember this story. Try and remember this truth that he has got this. That Jesus has already won. Only God wins in the end. They can make all the plans they like. They can make all the moves they like. It might look like all is lost, but only God wins. You want to win? Join Jesus. Can't lose. Let's pray.
our Lord. Thank you for this big truth that you win, that you have won. So easy for us to get caught up in small things or in things that feel very big to us. But at the end of the day, they're not what truly matters. Please help us. Help us to take comfort, to find refuge, to be able to trust and believe that you truly have one. When we see things that look like they point the other way, when we feel like all is surely going to be lost, help us to remember that Jesus is one. Thank you that you invite us from our mess and our brokenness to join you in your victory. Please might we find more of our joy in this truth that you are the victorious one. Amen. Thank you, Matt, for walking us through all that you've learned while studying this passage. Um, and thank you all for listening so carefully. Um, that's two difficult passages.